Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for choosing Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. This is the podcast that lets us explore the bookshelves, rifle around on them, and even bedside tables of some of our best-known and well-loved performers and creators. It's my goal, my passion even, to discover the books that have shaped their lives and made them the people they are today. This time around, I'm meeting the quietly brilliant American actress Laura Linney. She's a Golden Globe and Emmy Award winner and has been nominated for multiple Oscars. She's one of the most compelling actors working today and her work runs the gamut of stage, screen and TV from Tales of the City, Fraser, Ozark to Love Actually and The Truman Show and Mystic River. She's worked a lot with Clint Eastwood. Laura Linney is definitely one of those actresses who chooses her work cleverly and carefully and often with a strong sense of what narrative there's going to be there. So it's no wonder that she's a big book lover, a perfect guest for books to live by. Laura's first choice is My Name is Lucy Barton, Elizabeth Sturt's haunting best-selling novel from 2016 about a woman recovering in hospital from what should have been a simple operation. The book was adapted for the stage and resulted in Laura Linney's incredible one-woman show directed by Sir Richard Eyre. So first off, I wanted to know, was it a story that immediately struck her as something she'd like to perform? I don't read things with myself in mind for, or anyone else in mind for that matter. I, I love books f- to be a book. I love the experience of reading to be that. And I don't know if that's because reading came to me later in life. Um, I did not learn how to read easily. It took me a very long time to learn to read. People are surprised when they, when they learn this. Um, I had to be counseled and I had tutors and it was all, it was, everyone was very concerned that I couldn't read, couldn't read, couldn't read. So I have a different relationship with reading. I'm astounded I, by I that. I know most people, <laughs> most people are surprised by that. Well, well you know, you had an amazing education. You I went did. to a, a boarding school on the East Coast. You I went did. to Brown University. You went to Juilliard. I did. What was the problem with reading when you were young? I, I could, I just could not learn to read. It did not compute. And not dyslexic, though, or anything? Well, probably. I'm sure I was on, on some form. But then once I moved through whatever it was that was in my way or whatever part of my brain had not caught up yet, once that mended or once that became whole, it was like the, the road was clear. And then so by the time I went to, to boarding school, which I did at 14, which was my choice, I chose to go. Um, it was a real turning point. And I don't know if it was a new environment or a circulation of air or moving from New York into Massachusetts or what it was, but something cleared. And all of a sudden I could read in a way that I had never been able to read before. So when you and were so, younger, yeah. were books um, actually quite a frustration? Did anxiety, you look at them and think, Just yeah. complete anxiety. That I was, and I was terrified. I was always the worst reader in every reading group. I was bullied because of it. I was, I couldn't spell, I couldn't, it was all, it was all 
awful. And, and my father was a playwright. So I had a literary father who I, then I couldn't read. And it was, it was, it caused everyone all sorts of, they were all very concerned. <laughs> very concerned. Very, I can see very, them all very, flustering all very, around. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was a huge, you know, area of anxiety for me for a long time. Because you must have felt as well, I mean, much easier if you weren't in such a sort of uh, literary environment, you sure. know. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I just, it just, it took a while. So is, is there a, well, there is a childhood book. You've chosen a, a childhood mm-hmm. book, yes. which is uh, Eloise at the Plaza, but not yes. because you read it. No, I didn't read it. My grandmother read it to me. And she was the one person who I felt safe around with books for some reason. I would go visit her in Washington, D.C. I was usually there with her alone. And we would pile in bed and she would read these books. And Eloise at the Plaza was the one that we read the most. Um, and it was alliterative and it was, it has a rhythm to it. And the illustrations were glorious and, and it was fun. And she made reading fun. And I think I remember turning to her at one point and saying, I didn't understand that a sound was related to a symbol that then you could sound out and read a word. I think I, I think I felt that I had to memorize every word and what that word was. So I could remember, like, I, I could recognize the word the. But then I thought, I'm going to have to learn all of these words. Oh, no. How am I going to learn? And I can remember thinking, how am I going to learn all of these words? Like, it's never going to happen. I can remember thinking, it's just never going to happen. Do you think so, it had an impact on, on your relationship with them or the books that you then chose to read, the fact that you came to them quite late? Well, I think the ones that unlocked themselves to me had a huge impact. The ones that I could just fly through when I could get to that point where all of a sudden the the thought behind the line became clear and not just the written word, but the thought behind the word, the intention behind the word. And that's also like what I do for a living now. But when when that became evident, you know, those books became very, very important. Very important. But you must have been quite an intense young teenager because the books that you've chosen from your teenage yes, years yes. are, yeah. are um, you know, Homer's, the Iliad oh, and the Odyssey. Oh, but, absolutely. <laughs> but for me, for me, those two books really changed my life, completely changed my life. Because it was the first time I experienced drama within literature in a way that I could see, in a way that was because the language was heightened, because it was theatrical, because it was on a huge scale, and there was psychology behind this beautiful imagery that I understood, that all of a sudden, and I just, I became so excited by it. And it sounds so nerdy and so square, but it, you know, like some people have comic books or some people have, like I had that. Were you nerdy and square? No. I certainly wasn't a cool kid by any means. I was certainly never glamorous, but I was artistic, but quiet. I was not a, a, a not a loud, a loud person. And didn't um, reading Homer mm-hmm. coincide with two other things that may have influenced your passion for them? Mm-hmm. One of them being an amazing teacher. An amazing teacher. And the other being a rather attractive young man. Yes, I fell very much in love for, for the first time in that classroom, reading that stuff. So all of that, of course. And there was this magnificent teacher named Robert Cooley, who was a wrestler, you know, in, in the tradition of, <laughs> of the classics. He was the, the coach of the wrestling team. He was passionate about 
the history of Greece and Rome, about the literature, about all of it. And, and it was a small class, and there were just like six or seven of us in a circle. And it was my senior year. And I was falling in love with the guy next to me. And it was wonderful. But there's, there's still lines from those books, just little snippets of things like Rosy Fingered Dawn, um, A Steenax Beautiful as a Star Shining. They're, they're images and uses of language that I realize it's that feeling I'm trying to get to with anything I do on stage. It's that, and it, and it happens a little bit with Lucy Barton, a similar sense of a heightened sense of language a bit that is still very rooted in, in almost contemporary psychology. You know, a sort of classic use of language that does not rock, but just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and sort of unlocks with time. But it's you interesting know. that you also talk about the, it, them inspiring images. So absolutely, very much your relationship with words is tied in with with being able to to imagine them. Yes, you know, in a pictorial sense as well. Well, having things come and and I talk a, a lot about with other writers actually for you know when you're doing and it's interesting to, to think about literature that is used that is purely meant just to be read and then literature that is or literary work, I should say, that is then meant to come up and off the page and then translate into another medium. And that's a tricky bridge. That can be, that can be very hard for some writers. Um, you say you don't think about, you know, your own parts uh, or, you know, you don't read books mm. to find parts. But you must, in that case, being so aware of language and how it mm. works and, and the potential or lack of in books, you must be aware when you're reading something that you think could translate there, not necessarily there, for you there's a time i can certainly say when i'm reading a script and i read scripts the way i read books that if my actor brain turns on unconsciously if i start working on it without meaning to then i have to i have to pay attention to it then that means that there's something there's something in there and then it's fun to see the the pieces of work that su- totally surprise you that like on the page are just dull as spit and you m- make them three-dimensional and then they, they absolutely come to life. Then they become like a diamond. I mean, but on the page. So it's very, it's, it's deceptive. You have to really sort of try it on and trot it out and give it a go, you know, in some ways. How aware were you when you were being inspired in that way by, the, by Homer and by mm. the Iliad and the Odyssey? Yeah. Um, that, that, that acting was something you wanted to do. I mean, did you think... It- I already knew I wanted to be an actor, but I had never been exposed to... I had never had a connection to literature the way I did to those two books. And I don't know why it came easily to me, why those two books in particular. But then there's just something about the Odyssey, which is still like everything worthy in life. Things take a long time. (laughs) It is not easy to get from point A to point B. And there are many distractions. And you can be seduced and you can get lazy and you can be challenged. You can be hurt. You can have an affair. You can get confused. You can, you know, your job will change. You'll get older. Like it goes to such a um, universal truth of of a human journey that it it still reverberates, you know. It sounds... um also, I mean, you, you, your parents divorced when you were quite young. You yes. spent a lot of time on your own as yes, a child. Yes, very true. Yes. Not in an uncared for way, but, yes. but just, yes. you know, yeah, on your own. How much do you think that that, that 
that made you open to entering stories with the kind of full-heartedness that, that you do? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's entertaining. I mean, it's also just plain entertaining. And then there's something just about the way my, my brain will work. And there's always, there's always one line in a book or a script that will unlock everything for me. Just one. And it could be very mundane. With the seagull, for example. They say, uh, Nina says to, uh, to Treplev, you know, don't come to the house. My father has a gun. Which in Russia, in the countryside, who would care? Everyone had a gun in Russia, in the countryside. But for her to say that meant that there was violence in that household or there was danger there. So you have to sort of, there's, and then all of a sudden doors will start to be like, oh, she's not comfortable there. It's not just she wants out, she wants to let, there's a reason why. There's something about that father and she wants out of that house. And if that you doesn't know, happen for you, does that mean that it's not something that, that, that you can... You not know? necessarily, but it helps. <laughs> I mean, it certainly helps. And there are lines in books that you will just remember, you know, that will just make you stop and just, you know, you have to put the book down. And it's not just the word, it's the intention behind the word. And it's, it's all the words that have come before them that have led to that sentence. And then that sentence will hit you and you're just gutted. I've, I've got a book on my list that, that's down as the book that changed your life. But it sounds to me with, with the intensity with which you read yes. and digest that every book you read changes your life a little bit. A little bit, sure. Yes. And the rhythms of books also. The subconscious rhythm of a writing that will get in and 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 someone like a somewhere like a kaleidoscope everything will shift a little bit because the rhythm of the language is different the pace of the the sentences require a jauntier quicker pace a musicality to the language you know and sometimes you can't quite get in a, in tune with that sometimes some writers can pull you right in very quickly to that and other times it takes a while to kind of figure it out but it's worth the effort you know there are the books that you have to earn your way into Anna Karenina being one of them. Possession by ASBI, which I love. Another one. Like, I had to earn my way into those. They did not come easy to me. Um, but then once you're in, and once you finally f f somehow align yourself emotionally, intellectually, spiritually with a piece of work, once you, then, then it's just, it's just, you know, it's so exciting. So I'm going to ask you about a more literal connection in, yes. insofar as Tales of the City yes. by Armistead Mopin yes. really did change that your life. It literally changed my life. Completely tell, changed my life. Tell me how you first encountered it and, and then how it changed your life. Well, I, so Tales of the City is the first of nine, now nine novels written by Armistead Mopin, which started as a, um, a serial in the San Francisco Chronicle and then became novels. And, and they're quite... Uh, quite famous, uh, particularly within the LGBTQ community. Um, but they're about people even more than, more than any other sexual orientation or a period of time, although it is very known for its sort of 1970s San Francisco connection. And I played Marianne Singleton in the miniseries of these books. But before I even knew about them, I had never heard of them before. I was on, I had one day on a movie called Lorenzo's Oil, was it only one day? It was one day. I remember you from oh, Lorenzo. Yes, I was excellent in Lorenzo's <laughs> was so world. I was good. an excellent school teacher in the background. I was excellent. But it was a really fun day for me. It was, I'd never done movies and it was new and exciting. But the makeup artist looked at me and said, have you ever read Tales of the City? 
And I said, no, I had no idea what he was talking about. He goes, if, you do, if, they, if they ever do anything with Tales, you should play Marianne Singleton. And he gave me the book my last day. He gave me the book. So I was there for two days. On the second day, he gave me the book. And I thought, oh, how nice. And I really didn't think much of it. And then years later, I was cast as that part. And not only did it change my career, um, which it certainly did, I met friends. I made deep friendships on that piece of work that changed my life and are still a huge part of my life. I have my son's middle name is Armistead. He's named after Armistead Maupin because he's truly one of the best men I've ever known in my life. And I I'd hope that some of his spirit would, will extend into my child and help his life. Um, because everyone needs some Armistead as far as I'm concerned. So, so it, it changed my personal life. It also changed my career and it changed not just the fact that it did well and it led to other work, but I didn't, I didn't really understand film or TV, and I was intimidated by it. Um, I wasn't snobby about it. I just didn't think I'd be any good at it, and it scared me. Um, I had grown up in the theater. Theater was my home, and I, I didn't like cameras, and I just didn't know if it was for me. Had, had it really not occurred to you? Because we're talking, what are we talking about, the early 90s? Yes. No? I mean, so yes. you were in your... I graduated from Juilliard in 1990. I was 26 when I got out of school. So this was my, and that was soon after that, so a few years after that. And it really hadn't occurred to you that it, like a, that, that you could ever, or you might want a movie career? Oh, I had, no, or... I'd never thought of that. Oh, no, 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 no. Didn't, didn't even enter my mind. But that must I, have I, made mm, you mm, quite different from other people because, you know, that's not, we're not talking about the Victorian era. <laughs> yeah, free no, movies or, no. you know, to, to be an actress and not to have that ambition. Yeah. No, I was very much in the minority. And it wasn't that I just, I just didn't, think it was a planet I belonged on I, I mean I really didn't feel like I had a passport like I just didn't think I'd be able to to do it and doing tales all of a sudden I was like oh do I like this <laughs> am I having a good time here and I remember there was a day with Parker Posey we had a day where we were in a in the Safeway which is a grocery store in San Francisco <laughs> we had these huge carts flopping down the the aisleways doing a scene. And I just had so much fun. I had so much fun. And it wasn't only being with Parker on that day. It was the spirit of those books in that location. And it was different than in the theater because, A, you're outside, which is a big, huge change. It just gave me a, an added sense of, of circulation, which I hadn't had in or didn't un even understood existed in film. Or, or television. I just didn't know. I just didn't know. Do you think you also had, um, you know, a particular predilection for theatre? Because, you know, you, you grew up with your mom. Yes. Uh, your parents had split up. And your dad was probably in some way a kind of slightly remote, but, yes. but a character that you would aspire to impress. And theatre must surely have been a sure. route to that. I really, I really, I, I would so love to say my father had nothing to do with my connection to theater, which obviously he had an enormous amount to do with it. But I think there is, um, they were, both my parents were really wonderful about letting me find my own way. And I think that's the best way for you to have a relationship with anything that's important. You know, it has to be your relationship. The way that someone has a relationship to books, the way that someone has a relationship to communication or literature the way that someone has a communication to, to a person. The things that are vitally important, you sort of have to do on your own. And you can be influenced 
and you can be given opportunity. But at the end of the day, there has to be a contract between you and what you're doing that should be protected and should be given space and room to deepen and grow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You didn't give up on the theater, though. At no. All, even though, and in fact, you weren't seduced. More importantly, you weren't seduced by the screen, which, you know, is, is what happens to so many actors. Because you, you've returned to the theater over and over again. You move seamlessly between all three mediums, you know, the small screen and the big screen and the stage. Much to my surprise. And one of your choices as a, you know, a book to live by Mm -hmm. is the book of The Crucible. Yes. Which you also started, and you won a Tony Award for... I was nominated. They nominated the idiots. They should have given you the award. (laughs) Happily nominated, yes. Um, Which was a really um, enriching experience for Mm -hmm. you when you Mm -hmm. did. That was 2002, wasn't it? It was 2002. And The Crucible was a play that... In America, anyway, it's the play that every high school does. So you hear The Crucible and you think, oh, God, not The Crucible. Yeah, I can't, I can't. (laughs) I mean, I've seen so many bad productions of The Crucible. And when that opportunity was presented to me, with Richard Ayer directing and Liam Neeson was starring in, my first thought was, oh, God, not The Crucible. And I remember calling my father and saying, they want me to do The Crucible. And he said, oh, no, 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 you do it. He was like, absolutely, you do it. He was like, it's, it's a masterpiece. And I, what I knew of The Crucible was, you know, old ye olde clothes and pilgrims and goody proctor and goody so-and-so. But I, I, and then I talked to someone else and they said the same thing. And I thought, all right, well, then I've got to listen to these people who know much more than I do. And I started to work on that play. And I could, there's a, a large section of the third act where Elizabeth Proctor is not on stage. So I would be underneath the stage waiting to come up and I would listen to it's a huge courtroom sequence. And the orchestration of that language is completely genius. And where I was listening to the voices above me coming from different areas of the stage. And the more I listened to it, the more I appreciated the utter genius of that play. And how it unfolds. And then when you think about how writers weave in literally orchestration, when they orchestrate their their narrative, the topography of their narrative, how certain voices will have a certain rhythm that will undercut what just came before. I mean, when when you start to really become aware of all of those layers with really good writing, really good writing, I mean, it's just astounding. Are you musical? I'm not, 
but I like music and I hear it. Yeah, because you and talk I'm, about language, language like and music. music. Well, yeah. I, I I sort of see it as music. You know, it's syncopated. It tonally, it's different pitch. It affects people different ways. You know, so I do think of sound, the spoken word, and the rhythm of language. Then also affects the rhythm of physicality. If someone talks a certain way, they're not going to move in the opposite direction. <laughs> generally speaking. So you learn a lot about the psychology through the diagnosis of language. What, what do you think makes you, um, I, I'm not going to pay a compliment because if I pay a compliment, you'll say, Ugh. but what do you think makes you such an intuitive actor? What, what, what do you think makes you able to inhabit characters in the way you do? Is it because... Maybe it's because I didn't learn how to read until later. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's that. Because you come I, at it in a different way, I think. I might. I might. Um, because I think I see the utterance of of the written word as the last step, or the last step of one one type of within a, a book or a novel. That there's so much that comes before the words come, and then sometimes you know, and then and then you can be completely contradicted in two seconds. So it's it's interesting to see like where where does that come? Is the language coming from? a bunch of research and a bunch of thoughts that then result in the language? Or does the language come first that has an, an, an inherent wild spiritual content built within it that a writer isn't even aware of until it's on the page? And I think it, both can be true. I mean, you hear about some writers writing things very quickly. Like it just comes, 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 comes. And then you hear about the work that take 25 years to make. Yeah. And what's that? And does that come from the same place? Does it come from a different place? And how places can then inspire and infuse literature? Like, there's just everywhere. But also, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's unusual for you to have been down below, you know, listening to the play yeah, yeah. going on above you, and to be actually really listening to it, because an awful yeah. lot of actors in that situation would have been waiting, waiting for the cue, thinking, oh, God, I'm a bit hot. You know, you, 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 you seem to be incredibly collaborative, even in jobs that don't necessarily require well, you small to be collaborative. Part. I'm a small part of something. I mean, we're all small parts of something. And I'm the daughter of a writer. So I, I know that good, really good writers, you know, there is, there is a, an intention behind every comma, every period, every consonant, every vowel sound, every bit of alliteration. You know, they're, re, they're really, with the really good ones, and it's not meant to control, but it's, it's meant to guide and liberate. So if you can see that in the language... Like you, you will see a different, you'll see the thought behind the language and then you'll learn about the psychology and then maybe you'll learn about, you know, the things that connect to all of us as well as make us unique and different. You know, it's so interesting when someone has their own voice, you hear a writer, they have their own voice, it's their own voice, but that unique voice is what connects so many people. So it's interesting to me that it's a unique sounding voice that's unlike anything else that then brings so many people together. And gets closer and closer to what makes us all want to relate to each other. Which is also true of, of, you know? of when we watch something, when we watch a film yes, or a play absolutely. Or, or whatever. Oh, absolutely. The other thing I think that was striking about The, the, the Crucible was that it was your first encounter with Richard Eyre. Yes. And with Liam yes. Neeson. Absolutely. Um, 
And they are two of a small group of people who you have continued to work with. Clint Eastwood is another one. I like working with people over and over again. Yeah, why? I do. Well, you start from a deeper place. You, don't, you, can just, you can just jump in from where you left off. I've worked with Bill Condon a lot. I've worked with Richard Gere a lot. I've worked with Gabriel Byrne a lot. Um, and you, you know, you're safe and you've, you just jump in and you go deeper. And it tends to be much simpler. You've described working with Clint Eastwood as mm. being particularly inspiring. Mm. Clint Eastwood taught you to relax. Yes, he did. Now, that is yes, not... He did what most people might imagine would yes. be the experience of working with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, no, he did. He taught me like the importance of relaxation and what that is when you're working. And once someone sort of gives you that gift, then you have to sort of figure out, well, how do I replicate that for myself <laughs> when I'm not in this person's presence? You know, he just makes it very, very simple. But he also gives you an enormous amount of responsibility. But so how does he, how did he teach you how to relax? No, well, you just, how you, he, by because example. he's relaxed. Well, or, he's very relaxed. And he'll set, he'll set up a gorgeous environment in which for you to work. And you'll come on a set and he'll be like, okay, why don't you move to the desk if you want? <laughs> and then you can move over here if you want to. And, uh, you know, just have a go. And, you know, when you're used to being micromanaged, it's, you have to sort of just go with it. And when you're finished filming, you know, most people would scream action or scream cut. And he goes, okay, to to start, he goes, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead, just go ahead. You're not all nervous. No, someone's not yelling at you like action. No one's yelling at you before you start. And then you have to recover from, the cortisol has to calm down um, because someone's just yelled at you before you can actually work. So, and then you, you finish and he goes, okay, stop. He didn't say cut, he says, stop. Okay, were, were you happy with that? I was happy with that. Were we in focus? Okay, we're going to move on. And he sort of doesn't give you a chance. Like, you have to come prepared. You have to know what you're doing. You have to commit to it. So he sort of taught me how to stay relaxed all day long. Like, how to be relaxed up until the point where you come onto set and then to go through the scene and then come out of the scene. And you sort of have to stay at a, a similar energy level throughout the day. It was a great lesson. Um, let's you know? talk about Red. Yes, Red. Which oh, is God, a, I love Red. A, a, another play, and which is the text that you turn to for sort of inspiration mm-hmm. and guidance. Mm-hmm. Do you read? Do you read plays like you read novels? Yes, then? I do. I read plays like novels. Yes. So, so yes. it's like a story. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And like a great novel, a great play, you can read in different periods of your life. This is what makes a classic a classic, and it will mean something completely different every time you pick it up. There'll be the same story that will reverberate in a very different way. So there's certain plays that I like to pick up occasionally and see like where, how am I going to align with this play in this decade? Does that tell you how you've changed? In some ways. Yeah, in some ways. But Red is just a remarkable piece of work. And it was one of the best evenings I'd ever had in the theater. It was exciting. It's a John Logan play. Michael Grandage directed it. Eddie Redmayne and Alfred Molina did it. It's about Rothko. It's about Rothko and his you know, his assistant who became sort of his protege in their relationship and you're an artist relationship to, to themselves, to art, to the history of art and what the history of art will, will bring you. And the desperation of some people trying to stay relevant when it's just not possible. That's a difficult one for an actress. Well, 
isn't it? I, I get, I, yes, I guess. Not so much the you know, relevance, but yeah, no, the relevance. Well, is, the relevance is important because you want to be in service. And there's a difference between having a profession and having a vocation. Fortunately, when you have a vocation, and I'm lucky enough that I, that I feel I, I thank God I sort of fall into that camp. It makes the hardships much easier because they're not that important. You know, if you, if it's just pure profession, then the hardships are going to hurt much more. But if it's vocation, then, you know, that's part of it. It's okay. <laughs> so with so with Red and Rothko, you know, it's sort of aging and, and feeling, you know, young talent coming up and him having a standard and the world changing. And he has, he, there's this one line, and I think it's, it's that I'm afraid the black will overcome the red. Or, you know, it's just, <gasps> no, no, please. Yeah. The black is going to overcome the red or something like that. And, but is that and about depression? Or it is can that... be, well, it can be about a million things. Mm. It can be about everything. It can be politics. It can be culture. It can be family. It can be psychology. It can be art. It can be stagnation. It can be all of it, any of it. You know, I think all of us in one, in one form or another are trying to keep the black from taking over the red. You know, how much is your um, energy invested in, or, you know, you're kind of, you, you've got a great joy de vivre and uh, how much does that come from your work? Because it feels like a your lot. work is integral. A lot. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yes. Yeah. And always has been since you were little. And always since... have been. Yeah. Moments of connection to some piece of work, whether that was a television show I was watching as a kid, a movie I fell in love with as a kid, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the work I get to do, doing Little Foxes last year, working on Ozark. You know, those moments of connection for me is life. To me, that's life. Also, my son, my husband, my family, flowers, dinner with friends, that's life as well. But what um, sort of brings me in balance, I think, is some connection to work in is some connection to the arts and you know because it's bigger than it's much bigger than me I'll never understand it I'm always a student always every once in a while I can do something that doesn't suck and that feels really good that I don't stink at it you know and even with the things that really don't work that are just a disaster and don't work it's incredibly painful and you're ashamed and there's all of that stuff but you learn you really learn. So when you go to the next piece, you come with a different view, a different lens, you know, one that wasn't in your pocket before. And that's an accumulation and a layering of experience. I don't it's, to, it's a really good thing. I don't want to lower the tone. Go ahead. Um, but, lower but, it. But where does, Do it. where does your Game of Thrones addiction come oh, into? I love Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, I love Game of Thrones. I just love it. I just love it. Well, it's epic. It's epic and it's full and it's detailed and it's archetypal and it's, you know, and it's unbelievably literary. And you have all those symbols of all those animals with all those families and all those women doing all that. Oh, I just, I love it. Because that is your downtime favorite. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And I love the crown. And I love the crown. Yeah. You, you know, it's fantastic. 
Actually, as an actress, you know, the, the, the sort of advent of the box set. Yes. How do you feel about it? I mean, do you feel that it's actually allowed for a whole different form of kind of uh, oh, the whole, the expression? Whole. Because it, oh, sure. it's, it's a whole different thing, isn't it? To, to make a movie, even even though it might be the same length, it's a completely different thing to sustain those characters mm-hmm. over months yeah. and years. And, and it's, a, it's a real challenge. What's wonderful about it is what's also hard about it. What's great is this long, overarching thing that you're a part of. And what's hard about that is that you don't know where you're going when you're on the journey. And that can be hard as an, as an actor, not knowing how to craft something so that what you do in episode three of the second season will pay off in episode six of the fourth season. Because it's not written you know, It's yet. not written yet. They don't know. Nobody knows. So you're a little like, how do I make this specific? How do I, you know, um, and that's just trust and you just do the best you can. But, the but there's something about something like Game of Thrones, which is, well, you know, they had all those books to start. So they were they were in great shape. But, you know, there, there's an, when, when something is set up that well, when it is set up that well, particularly not just character, narrative, plot, theme, all of that stuff. But visually, I mean, that production design, <laughs> it's phenomenal. that world, come on. But, but the books like books also like that, that have those huge, long investments of time. And, you know, part of the fun is just plowing through them. Part of the fun is like, oh, I read that. <laughs> I read all of them. You know, it's also like Harry Potter. You know, you have book that skips from book to book to book to book, and it just keeps getting better and better. And the experience, and it takes time. It takes time to read. Reading is something that requires time, uh, being in one place, concentration, imagination, and you invest in it. But what it gives you back, whether it takes you a long time to learn how to read or whether reading comes very easily to you, you know, it, it demands something from you and you have to give it in order to get it. And that's, I like that kind of, I like that. I like having to earn something. We should have um, you on big screens around the country, <laughs> around the world, like Big Brother, but just saying all of that. But it's true. Over and over. But you do have to, you have to earn, you know, there's some things that are worth earning. And I find, I, I find that sort of, all of that sort of stuff very, very fulfilling. You mentioned um, Ozark and you know, there's a lot of parts, perhaps the more commercial ones that you've taken a lot of the time, mm-hmm. uh, that have involved playing the wife. Yes. Yeah. And it's something that you do with an inordinate amount of skill. And you manage to take, you know, parts that really, if you look at them on paper, mm. might not add up to very mm. much mm-hmm. and turn them mm-hmm. into something that adds up to a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this is leading in some it's very way nice. Thank into, you. Yes, um, go. Bring it. No, no, it's leading into, you know, your favorite biography, the the, oh. the John Adams yes. 1776 by yes. by David McCulloch. But I thought we could talk first just about mm-hmm. what it takes to Okay, so that John Adams is a good example because you mm. played Abigail Adams and I know that you played her pigeon toed yes. even though you never saw her feet. Yes, no. Yeah. No. So that's a hell of a detail. Yes, but like but what a detail to learn about someone. So is that an example of how you take these parts that often 
our support parts mm. to mm-hmm. the man mm-hmm. um, and turn them into something that really does encapsulate so much of, of, of an individual's nuance. Well, you try and find the stuff that's interesting to play, like what makes someone an interesting human being and and what and then just in service to a story, regardless of of who you are, but in service of, of a plot and in a narrative, Abigail Adams to John and what did she do? How did she help move his life forward? What was she doing and what was she overcoming in the process? And so whatever work I did for Abigail, what, what I also knew would help feed Paul Giamatti and would feed the series and all that sort of stuff. So, But you do look for those things that you know affected a person all the time. You know, and being, and being pigeon-toed. I mean, you don't see people who are pigeon-toed anymore. You don't really see that. If your feet are, are off-kilter, they're corrected by the time you're you're older. But to be pigeon-toed, I mean, fortunately, they had all those skirts so no one could see. But imagine not being able to move like that in a world, you know, where you had to move. <laughs> you know, that it was, it, was, it was something that I don't think, there was something that she had to come over. And the, the thing that I love the most about when I, when I realized there was a whole section in the book about she go, they go to France and she's in France for several years, and then she comes back to the United States. She sells her house. She gets a bigger house. She gets nicer things. Like all of this stuff. She, I was like, "What happened? What happened? Something, something happened for such a change, for such a Yankee to all of a sudden like uproot and and say, I want more." I was like, "Oh, fame and France. The impact of travel." the impact of a European culture on a Puritan woman. And then she came back, became famous, and she had a little blood in her mouth. So you're like, oh, that's what happened. She became famous. That's what, that's what fame looked like then. Like all of a sudden, it, liber- it gave her a sense of power that she didn't know she had. And she used it. And do you think, I mean, do you think when people cast you, in those roles or ask you to play uh, so-and-so's wife mm-hmm. that they're relying on you to invest in. No, I think they have no it... idea. I think they have no idea what I'll do. I don't think they have a clue. But why do you think they come to you then? Because they I could get somebody else to just they couldn't sort of get, like, be the, the... the six people above me to turn it down. That's so not true. But it's true. It. No, I think it is. I think there's absolutely reality to that. There is reality. I'm just I'm lucky enough that it, that it came to me. I mean, honestly, you know, some things... You know, there's a, and that's not special. That's not, and that's not, I mean, that's just the way it works. But there is a thing um, about roles for women that, that, that is different to roles for men. There are very few yes. men who are just there in a supporting Correct. role. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. so it becomes something that has to be part of your creative toolkit is the mm-hmm. ability to, to take that part yes. and make it transcend. Yes, and you can, you can see where there's room for that and where there's not. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty obvious. It's on the page. It's pretty, or it's not on the page. And it's pretty clear, or at least for me, it's pretty clear. Like, is, am I going to be bored to tears playing this? And is it worth being bored to tears if I get to work with a great actor? Like, okay, I don't have to be anything special, but I'm going to get to work with that great person or that great director. You know, I'll, I, I, I don't have an ego that way. Like, am I going to go learn from that director and be, a, be in a bad part? Yep, you bet I am. Yep. You know. We're going to go backwards now mm-hmm. just because okay. um, we talked about 
how inspiring you found Homer as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, but we haven't talked about your backpacking days and the book that oh. you treated. I mean, you yes. talked with great reverence about yes. an awful lot of literature. Yes. But um, this book you treated rather badly, yes. frankly. Yes. Uh, tell me a bit about East of Eden by John Steinbeck and what you did. East of Eden, it was my first sort of rail trip around Europe. And I was alone. And I took East of Eden with me. And it was a big, huge paperback. And I had a backpack and I, you know, I had my Euro pay, my Euro pass and... Are you traveling on, my, on your own? I was on my own. I was meeting up with friends along the way, but and I would read a chapter or two on the train, and then I would rip it off and leave it in the train, in the train compartment. So there is an entire version of East of Eden all over Europe somewhere. I'm sure they've all it's all disintegrated at this point. But at one point, there were chapters of East of Eden on in Switzerland and France and Germany. <laughs> you know, they were they were in Italy. It was just all over the place, and it was such a fun. I don't know why. I just clearly wasn't thinking. I just grabbed, I don't know why I grabbed East of Eden, but to read such an American book. Yeah, like a seminal American classic. A seminal classic. American classic while on my first sort of big European adventure was really kind of wonderful. They were so different and yet it was, it, it made complete sense at the same time. But I would be reading and I would see a color palette from California. <laughs> you know, and I would look up and I would be in Switzerland. <laughs> And it would be, it would be so strange. But there's a lot about trains in in East of Eden as well, and and travel and people relocating and the beginning of a country and the beginning of industry and the beginning of love and the beginning of all that sort of stuff. And and it sort of oddly made sense in a weird kind of way. Yeah. I wonder if anyone has collected together. Someone the found it somewhere. <laughs> Laura somewhere. volume. That's right. Um, we talked a lot about serious books. Yes. And- Deep themes, yes. and you're clearly a very serious woman, but you're also <laughs> very funny indeed. Yes, and um, there Thank is you. a book here that you consider uh, one of the funniest you've read, and that's why you've chosen it—the book yeah. that made you laugh out loud. Yeah. Yeah. It's the maddest book. Oh, it's I a remember reading. Book. I mean, it was yeah. one of the first, wasn't it? Sort of. Um, those sort of memoirs, those sort of misery memoirs, mm-hmm. except that it's really, not, I mean, it's mm-hmm. shocking, but it's not miserable. Mm-hmm. It's Augustine uh, Burroughs running with scissors. Yes. And it's, it, there's something about really great comedy that I, I always feel that comedy is a way to make sense of the world. It's a survival technique. Laughing, comedy is a way to make sense of chaos. And when it is truly, and running with scissors is sort of like sticking your finger in a light socket. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's, it, it goes just to the heart of such humanity, of people who are just behaving terribly to each other, to themselves, around. Everything's chaotic and absurd and bonkers. And then there is a warmth to it at the core of it that makes it really uh, moving, I find. You know, so I just, I, I loved that. I loved reading that book. And it's a book of extraordinary, like very much larger than life characters. Absolutely. If you're all about playing quiet characters with where, 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 where a tiny movement a tiny nuance, or yeah. a tiny yeah. nuance, these are, these are oh, like oh, exploding off Oh, that's oh, oh, fantastic. Oh, they're just, it's just fantastic. But it's, 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 it's the way that really good comedy works, is that it releases attention within you. And in some ways, it touches truth in a way that nothing else can. 
it can get it can get you to a truth in a way that is startling and then the laughter is the relief and the acknowledgement of the truth it's the acknowledgement of oh my god you know that's what that is and when there's when they're great big huge characters that are seem larger than life but really are rooted very deep very very deep you know it's it's very satisfying because I find drama is much more comedically based and comedy is, is rooted in, in the heavier stuff also. You know, there is a, there's a yin and a yang. There's a, a, ten, a suspense and a tension that they pull each other in opposite directions. And the comedy will sort of open fissures in drama and the drama will root the comedy. So, Do you think, um, do you think that people take you too seriously? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a I'm a goofball. I'm a t- complete goof. You know, I have a very raunchy, bad sense of humor and um, maybe not a bad sense of humor. But um, I mean, I certainly have my m- my quieter, you know, introspective side. But, you know, I love big, huge, crazy stuff. I, I you know, I, I just do. I And I love to laugh. And. And when things are funny, I just, it's just delicious. It's just delicious. It's just wonderful. I do ever watch a film like Mamma Mia and think I could do that. <laughs> I will. I'm not a singer, so I couldn't do that. But um, uh, have you ever seen Slapshot? Yes. It's my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> I can watch Slapshot once a week. I love Slapshot. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It makes me laugh. There's that guy who constantly looks at himself in the mirror. It just makes me laugh. Oh, my God. It's just fant- it's a fantastic movie. See, there you yeah. go. You see, I think you are barking mad. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Thank you very much, Laura Linney. It's my pleasure, Mariella. Always my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Times Radio app.